You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. Today's episode was produced in partnership with Grow by Ginkgo. Beauty is often considered a superficial quality, but it has tremendous power over us. An expression of our ever-evolving and surprising diversity, beauty can inspire great joy and creativity, but it can also become a tool of oppression. Featuring Sudeep Agarwala and Jasmina Aganovic, these two episodes are adapted from Grow's 2020 print issue on beauty, where we explore biology's most mysterious trick in all of its facets. Grow is a magazine that tells creative stories about biology published by Ginkgo Bioworks and edited by Massive Science. To read more, head over to growbyginkgo.com. Our first story today is from Sudeep Agarwala. It was recorded in his home last summer in Boston. It is the morning of my eighth birthday, and I'm sitting on the floor of our kitchen in the house in the suburbs of Chicago. And in front of me is this plate with a few things arranged on it. There's some grass, some patty rice, flowers, uh, an oil lamp that's been lit. We, we called it a breathing. And there's this small bit of beige paste on the plate that we call chandan. And my entire family is standing around me. And they're about to start a tradition for birthdays that my parents brought over from India. Uh, one by one, my sister, my mother, my father, they, they approach me and they take a bit of the rice, the flour and the grass, and they put it on my head. Afterwards, they warm their hands on the oil lamp and touch my head and chest. And finally, they take their pinky finger and dip it into the beige paste. And this is the part that I, I've been dreading this entire ceremony. They take their pinky and they dot it on my forehead. And the paste is cold and it's wet. It has a nice fragrance, uh, a thick scent to it, I, I suppose. But as it dries, it dries into this thick white crust that's crackly and rough, and it hurts when you raise your eyebrows. This is what every birthday would look like for me growing up. My family would do this as a way of wishing me a happy, healthy year ahead. But when we were done as a kid, I'd run upstairs, comb everything out of my hair, and then jump into the shower to scrub my face hard to get rid of this hard, flaky white crust. Jandan, this beige paste, is made from this wood, which is considered holy in India. It's been described for millennia in Indian sacred text, and 
this wood is used exclusively for worship of the goddess Luxmi. As a kid, though, I just knew it looked weird and felt gross, and I really wanted it washed off my face. And in a sense, I, I kind of want to wash all of this off as a kid. The celebration was part of my life as an Indian American, but it was also deeply embarrassing. We had this ceremony every year on my birthday, but we never once invited an American friend who, to witness it. Uh, we never spoke of it outside of our household. We all just wanted to be normal. This tradition was an aberration from that, but it was important to us. Important to us, but not so important that we wanted to be seen as having these weird traditions. I, I still remember the first birthday, actually, uh, where the ceremony didn't happen. It was one of the most exciting and liberating experiences of my life. My birthday is in early summer, in mid-June, and the first year it didn't happen, I, I was turning 18. I had a chance to leave Chicago, where I grew up, and I had this opportunity to do uh, research in a biology lab in Maine in the summer. And that birthday, I remember feeling that something was missing, that the birthday was somehow being less special, despite it being my 18th birthday. But I was too excited thinking about research in a real biology lab, not to mention exploring these main woods. Science, biology, wasn't just a career choice. It was a way to escape my parents' immigrant life. It, was, it represented my future. Uh, it was a way to become American, to become what it felt like to become sophisticated. In fact, after that year, I, I never had a chance to have this birthday ceremony in my life again, as I continued on to college and then to grad school to become a biologist. Today, almost everyone I know uh, knows me as a scientist. I've It still <laughs> baffles me, but... I, I make a living as a professional biologist, as a professional yeast scientist. And I stumbled into this new field, synthetic biology. And as a synthetic biologist, I think of biology as a technology that we can deploy against challenges humans are facing from resource limitation. Um, and as part of this, a few years ago, I was tasked with thinking about how to preserve the ways that humans worship and materials that we consider holy. So to explain that, you know, uh, from the Christmas story, we, we know frankincense and myrrh. But as it turns out, frankincense and myrrh are becoming more and more precious because they're becoming endangered because of climate change and over-harvesting. Same story goes from agar root, from the Islamic tradition. And I was shocked to encounter Jundhan, this paste as I hate as a child in this context. Rather than call it jandan, though, this time around, I encountered it as sandalwood. Sandalwood, maybe more specifically, I encountered it as centalum album. It's this uh, parasitic plant, an epiphyte that's related to mistletoe. And it's a vulnerable species that's currently prohibited from being harvested in India because it's over-harvested for its religious context. And climate change is making things worse. Its ecological niche is becoming increasingly rare. Oh, the guilt. Uh, growing up, it's such a narrow definition of what sophistication and what normal meant. I wanted to be American. I wanted to have the same parties and birthdays as my friends. And what I didn't realize as a child 
was how amazingly special this birthday ceremony that I had was. It's only something that I could really realize once I escaped having those birthday ceremonies and became a real scientist, that this thing that I hated having smeared on my forehead was not just a part of my parents' tradition. It's a part of the world's heritage. It's a part of the world's heritage that is disappearing. But in the same vein, this life that I've escaped into is one which offers solutions to preserving this tradition. As a, as a synthetic biologist, I can identify the genes which are important for this fragrance and put it into my favorite organism of choice, yeast, the same yeast you use to brew beer or to bake bread. And just like we'd brew a batch of beer, we can brew a batch of sandalwood fragrance produced from yeast. There's hope here. There's hope of preserving this, this fragrance, but it's bittersweet. In doing my job, it somehow feels like I'm admitting defeat, that climate change and overconsumption are winning, perhaps have won. And as a scientist, in a way, I'm, I'm working to preserve what I can from a world that soon may not exist anymore. Before my daughter was born this past year, my mother sent a package of things along from home. There was a bunch of clothes, some toys, things in general for having babies. It's their first daughter. It's her first child. At the bottom of this package, though, there was this piece of wood that was wrapped in paper. Because there was so much going on at the time, I didn't have time to really uh, unwrap or really, really think about what was in the package, so I, I put everything away. But this morning, I'm holding this piece of wood eight days after our daughter's birth. This, these past eight days have been amazing. Uh, my husband and I have been trying to have uh, have a child for four years. For gay men, having a child can be a long, expensive journey. All of that, though, evaporates the moment she was born. Uh, it was such a complete and uh, all-consuming joy to have this new human with us. And even the long, sleepless nights this past week have seemed like a complete pleasure. But this morning, this eighth day after our daughter was born, the house is in extra chaos because we're preparing for a Simchat Bat. This comes from my husband's Jewish tradition. Um, it's, it's when a baby girl gets, first gets her name eight days after she's born. My husband is outside uh, organizing with the rabbi. And even though uh, our daughter's going to be raised Jewish, we discussed and we agreed that it's important for me to contribute something from my Bengali heritage. So I'm inside looking after her while she's sleeping, and I'm holding this piece of wood that my mother sent me a few months ago. It's smaller than I remembered from my childhood. It's dark brown, almost black, except you know where it's been ground away to make this beige paste, jandan. This piece of wood that I'm holding, it's made a long journey all the way from India at the bottom of my mother's luggage through so many years of my birthdays as I scrubbed so hard to get it off my face. But it's longer than that. This is the same piece of wood that was used for my grandfather's birthdays, for my mother's birthday. And now it's here in Boston on the morning of my daughter's baby naming ceremony. As I'm grinding the paste to make the jundan paste, I, I think about how it's disappearing in my hands just a tiny bit at a time. And that one day, this stick of sandalwood will also completely disappear. In fact, all sandalwood may disappear. If 
one day we can make sandalwood from yeast if synthetic biology is successful and sandalwood is no longer coming from the plant, what will it feel like on the foreheads of, of generations that will come? And will wearing sandalwood mean the same thing to them? Will it still be a blessing if it doesn't come from this rare, fragrant wood? I don't know. But then again, my experience of Chandan is almost certainly different from my mother's growing up in India, and hers was different from my grandfather's. This morning, as I'm standing in front of all of our friends and family on Zoom during our daughter's baby naming ceremony, I take my pinky, dip it into the beige paste, and dot it onto her forehead. She's sleeping, but she makes a face. And I wonder what that face means. I wonder how she's experiencing it. Certainly, it's different from how I ever felt about it, my mother, my grandfather before that. And her experience will be different from the generations to come who may not have real sandalwood for their ceremonies. As we continue on with the Simchat Bat and start with the blessing over the wine and the challah, it's dawning on me that it's this changing experience that's the only thing that I can ever hope to pass on as a parent. My daughter is the next step in the ever-evolving story of this tradition. That was Sudeep Agarwala. Sudeep is a yeast geneticist and program director at Ginkgo Bioworks. His writing about biology has appeared in the Washington Post and in Grow magazine. Again, both of today's stories were adapted from original pieces published in the Grow magazine. We will link to both of these in our episode notes, so if you're interested, you can see how these written pieces evolved into oral stories over the course of our work with both Sadiq and our next storyteller, Jasmina. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Speaking of which, our second story today is from Jasmina Aganovic. It was recorded in her office in Boston this fall. One morning, I came into the office during a meeting that was taking place in the back conference room. The walls were all glass, so the conference room was a focal point of the space. Other than those in the meeting, the rest of the office was empty. I walked over to my workspace and sat down at my computer to prepare for a meeting that we were having with a prominent lab on campus that day. It was the summer after my junior year in college. I was interning at a seed stage venture capital company that was working with student entrepreneurs starting companies out of their PhD programs. I was not there because I was interested in becoming an investor. 
In fact, I hadn't the vaguest idea actually of what kind of job I wanted after school. But what I did know is that I really enjoyed science being used to create things in unexpected ways, which led me to this internship. When I wasn't in that office, I was hopping from building to building on campus with my boss. Sometimes entire teams were in fancy conference rooms, and other times it was just about speaking to a lone founder in a cramped lab office. That morning, I was in the office until the afternoon. One of the partners walked out of the conference room in the back and shared that there was a lab at one of these schools that had developed a partnership with a prominent cosmetics company. They were in the process of winding down that collaboration, and they needed someone to take a look at the technical development that was done there and provide a summary. Would I be interested? Sure, I said. But I was mostly preoccupied with the upcoming meeting at that well-known lab, so I just took the folders and put them to the side. There was another intern there that summer. We sat next to one another and usually tag-teamed things. I assumed that this cosmetics lab project was no different. I started speaking with him about it, and one of the other team members at the company said something like, Jasmina, we figured you should do this on your own. It's the beauty industry. Figured you'd have fun with it. It dawned on me that I was the only woman at this venture capital firm and that this was probably the driving factor for this project being given to me. While I realized that my colleague was well-meaning, uh, I don't know that I recognized it as sexism, actually. I don't know if it was because I was naive and I hadn't yet stepped into the world where I would face that full-on, or maybe it just wasn't talked about as much back then as it is today. Instead, I actually think most of my annoyance was that the beauty industry wasn't taken seriously as an innovation driver, and I did not want to be given a project that wouldn't be taken seriously. I blanked out on the rest of what was being said because my soul was rolling its eyes and my horrible poker face was about to give it away. The next morning, I decided to treat myself with a bribe to do the work. I went to the coffee shop nearby. I sat by the window at this small round table and ordered a nice coffee. I opened up the first manila folder and started flipping through the papers. Pretty quickly, I started to think, huh, this is kind of interesting. As I got deeper into the material, I realized that this was an industry that I enjoyed and one that was well aligned with my background. I also realized that it had an element of creativity and speed and storytelling that was really attractive to me and how I liked to work. I ended up going through the material pretty quickly and finishing up the report. While I still thought that this was kind of a weird way to assign people projects, it was a watershed moment for me. It felt like there was a door opening and all you saw was what was on the other side. You just don't even pay attention to the door in terms of the color, the material, or any details like that. You're just focused on the thing that is on the other side. It's like a bright light being all you see as everything is blasting through that opening. After that internship, I made the decision to start my career in the beauty industry. At the time, the economy was effectively collapsing. I distinctly remember walking down the infinite corridor of MIT that September and seeing people crying undoubtedly because they had just lost their prized full-time job offers as a result of the financial collapse. This backdrop was something else that gave me maybe the prodding that I felt I needed to do something unusual because I didn't feel like I was missing out on much. I applied to every remotely relevant job online at all of the major companies. I'm talking probably over 100 jobs. 
I remember writing these extremely thoughtful cover letters, and they all felt like they went into the abyss. I never heard back from a single one. Not one. And so the months went by. I was telling people about what I was trying to make happen, I think a bit sheepishly, because the response was mixed. There was, of course, the resistance that you might expect. My advisor, who was a tenured professor at MIT, who I so admire to this day, point blank told me that my decision to work in beauty was wasted because I could be doing more meaningful work in a field like cancer research. That was gutting, especially given that cancer hits close to home in my family and pretty recently at that time. That statement made me feel selfish and frivolous. My friends were generally supportive, though it came with its own experiences that could sometimes be demoralizing. I remember one of my close friends who was the endless cheerleader for everyone. We were sitting in one of those lounge areas catching up in these armchairs that were orthogonal to one another, just looking outside at the window. The juxtaposition of our circumstances in that youthful moment of insecurity caught up to me in that moment. He was one of those people that arrived on campus and knew exactly what he wanted to do and where he wanted to work. <laughs> and to this day, he is in his late 30s at the job he knew he wanted as a teenager. And that just seemed so impossible to me. He was like, you can do this. But I remember looking at him and realizing by the look in his eye that he was bewildered by my decision and didn't have the heart to tell me straight. Him, my close friend, an encourager. Thinking back, I think the comments that hurt the most were not actually the harsh words that came from my advisor. It was what was in the void of comments that came from friends who didn't understand my decisions. I didn't really expect my advisor to know me all that well, but I did expect my close friends to. I started to question everything. The what-ifs were killer. I was fighting them off all the time, but sometimes they would just overwhelm me and I had to succumb. And that moment in that lounge with my endless cheerleader was one of the many times that I cried that last semester over the uncertainty of what was ahead. My friend was patting me on my shoulder to comfort me, but he didn't know what to say, which only magnified the disconnect of our circumstances. But one thing I've learned about myself, especially over time, even if I'm devastated during discouraging circumstances, give me a beat and my brain will probably find something else to try. It doesn't happen overnight, but my mind will always return to this irresistible need to figure it out. It's like something in the back of my mind just keeps churning while I'm walking, making food, exercising, whatever. And then suddenly something emerges and you think, that is pretty compelling, actually. I want to give that a go. And sometimes it's more like, eh, it's a stretch, but it doesn't hurt to try. And if it works, that would be amazing. And here's what I realized. Just emailing and applying online wasn't going to do it. I remember pacing in my dorm room one morning. It was a sunny day out, and through my window I could see the Charles River. The water was shimmering. Suddenly I thought, maybe looking at open job postings was actually narrowing my scope. What if instead I thought about brands that I loved and just let them know I was interested in contributing? So I opened my laptop and started Googling the name of brands that came to mind. I would click on their homepages, scroll to the bottom of the page where it said, contact us. And whatever that number was, I called it. It was harrowing to make cold calls. The calls themselves were all different. Some of them were automated. Some of them directed me to customer service. Some of them outright said, 
no thanks. Others took down my info. One of those random and uncomfortable cold calls was to a brand named Fresh. I love this brand because they were pioneering the naturals category with stunning fragrance and ingredient stories. After giving my spiel, I'm a chemical engineer from MIT, I'm graduating soon, I would love to help the team at Fresh if there are any open roles. The woman on the other side of the line said, isn't MIT in Boston? I said, yes. And she said, well, I don't know if you know this, but Fresh's headquarters is in Boston. I think I remember hearing that they need help in product development. Would you be open to that? And you can probably guess what my answer was. My time at Fresh was incredible. I savored every second of it. It helped me find my footing and launched my career. Fast forward to this day, I stayed in the beauty industry and have loved it. Today, I'm an entrepreneur in residence at the biotechnology company Ginkgo Bioworks, where I'm looking at how biology can create an entirely new tool set for the ingredients used in the beauty industry. And while I still encounter judgment from others and even my own of what the industry I am in stands for, I use it as a reminder for the opportunity I have ahead of me to change how people see this industry and to increase its impact on our quality of life. And anytime I get a cold call from a student wanting to chat about career stuff, I always answer. That was Jasmina Iganovic. Jasmina is a cosmetics industry professional who is passionate about translating innovation into meaningful brands that have an opportunity to connect with a broader audience. Her previous company, Mother Dirt, included a line of products focused on the skin microbiome. Now, Jasmina is working with the powerful Ginkgo Foundry to see what we can learn from biology and can harness through microbes for use in the personal care industry. The Story Collider is so grateful to Sudeep and Jasmina for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Grow by Ginkgo, as well as the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's program director, Nissa Greenberg, and senior podcast editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our intern Jamie Banks, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode originally ran as print pieces in The Grow magazine, and for this episode they were produced by me, Erin Barker, and senior producer Ari Daniel. Our theme music is by Ghost. A huge thanks again to Grow by Ginkgo for supporting this episode and to Sudeep and Jasmina for adapting their beautiful stories. Next week, we'll be back with more live recorded stories from our shows. Until then, thanks for listening.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.